0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Well, last week, Pastor Jonathan ended his sermon by highlighting the two Old Testament quotations that Paul uses to encourage Timothy in the face of the foolish and irreverent talk that is upsetting the faith of some. There's two quotations. The, the Lord knows those who are His and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And that, those two quotes together, I think, um, give us two essential aspects of Christian assurance. On the one hand, we see in them the sovereign grace of God. The Lord knows those who are His and no one can snatch us out of His hand. God is God, and as we frequently sing at the end of our services, He is able to keep us from falling. But on the other hand, we see in those two quotations the necessity of human action. God's sovereign grace doesn't lead us to complacency, you can't say. Well, God is going to keep me. He knows those who are His, and therefore I can sit back and rest on my heels. Christian assurance requires action. Those who call themselves Christians must not simply drift because God is able to keep me. Instead, we must depart from iniquity lest we fall into iniquity. We must depart from evil lest we fall into evil. And so the Lord knows those who are His, and those who are His depart from sin. Those are the two sides of Christian assurance. And I highlight them here because I'm going to return to something like them at the end of the message. But from there, following straight through, Paul uses an analogy for Timothy as he's encouraging him in his uh, coming leadership. As Paul hands the baton in his final letter... He, he tells Timothy the, the kind of leader he should aspire to be. So, here's the analogy. Every household, including yours, has different kinds of vessels, different um, things that we use to hold other things. You've got dinner plates, and you've got the toilet bowl. You've got fine china, and you have the cleaning bucket. And Paul uses that analogy to tell Timothy what kind of vessel he should be. Timothy, be the dinner plate. Timothy, be the fine china. Be the useful vessel ready for every good work. You must first, in order to do that, you must first cleanse yourself, Timothy. And so how do you do that? What does it mean to cleanse oneself? To cleanse oneself of what is dishonorable? Well... It means fleeing the tendencies and temptations of youth. Paul has said something similar to Timothy before. It's the sort of thing that, you, that older um, leaders don't get tired of saying to younger leaders. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, after talking about the love of money, which might be one of these youthful passions, after talking about the love of money, Paul says, flee these things and pursue righteousness and godliness and faith. And here again, he says, Timothy Flee youthful passions and instead pursue virtue, pursue holiness, and do so in a prayerful community along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Timothy, cleansing yourself means avoiding stupid and fruitless fights because God's servant avoids stupid fights. God's servant is universally kind, is skillful at clarifying truth. And falsehood has a thick skin and seeks to reveal error and call, it, call uh, to repentance with humility and gentleness. Paul then goes on in chapter 3 to describe what Timothy will be up against. Distressing times, distressing times, difficult times are ahead. And people in those days will be marked by ungodliness and vice rather than virtue. You're gonna, people are going to be Selfish. They're going to be arrogant. They're going to be unloving and reckless and enslaved to passions. They're going to be covered with a superficial veneer of godliness. And out of that group, there will come manipulators and schemers who will sneak into households to ensnare gullible women. Women who are burdened with sins, led astray by their desires, always jumping on the latest fad and yet unable to grow in maturity and find stability in the truth. These manipulators, these False teachers are like the Egyptian magicians, Janus and Jambris, who opposed Moses. Now, eventually God will expose their folly, but in the meantime, they can do lots of damage, Timothy. That's a summary of this passage. And what this passage then gives us, I think, is a clear contrast between the Lord's servant, on the one hand, and the pagan sorcerers between true teachers, faithful teachers, and false teachers. And so what I want to do today is spend the bulk of our time laying out the differences between the Lord's servant and the false teachers. And I think that this is absolutely crucial in our present cultural moment. Because there have always been false teachers, There have always been those who oppose God and oppose His servants, whether it's the ungodly in the days of Noah, whether it's the magicians in the days of Moses, whether it's the Pharisees in the days of Jesus, or heretics and false teachers throughout church history, there have always been those who oppose the truth and are depraved in mind. But they haven't always had virtually unlimited access to God's people. Our technology today enables us to access countless voices from all over the map. Like, we drive to work and we listen to podcasts or the radio. We stand in line and we check our Twitter feed. We lie in bed late at night and scroll through Facebook. We voluntarily subject ourselves to Instagram influencers, Twitter pundits, Facebook celebrities, YouTube stars, as well as podcasters, politicians, journalists, cable news hosts, thought leaders, my favorite, not to mention the advertisers who are getting rich off of all of it. And so when you hear in this passage, as we we unpack and say, what are the characteristics of true teachers and false teachers… I don't want you to merely think of the obvious ones, okay? Meaning, when I say the word false teacher, I suspect many of you think of something like health, wealth, prosperity teachers, a Joel Osteen, a Creflo Dollar, and that's true. They're included. You should hear You should think of them. You might think of false teachers who distort the Trinity or deny the resurrection of Jesus or something like that, and that's true. You should think of them. But as you listen today, I want you to think of the entire ecosystem of information and narratives and personalities and voices that you swim in. Because it's that ecosystem that has a deep and profound effect on us. It shapes us. It molds us. It frames how we experience the world. How we take in events, like in other words, like what you've heard, like what you've what you've swam in, swum in. I'm not getting. What you've immersed yourself in shapes what you hear next. Old news shapes how you hear new news. So the question for us is. What kind of people should we listen to? What kind of people should we avoid? Because that's what Paul says here in chapter 3. He tells Timothy, avoid such people. There are certain kinds of people that should be avoided. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, bad company corrupts good character. So what is bad company? What is good company? And so first, let me give a few caveats before diving into the list. First, when we say avoid, avoidance doesn't mean, it can't mean total avoidance, okay? As Paul says elsewhere, in order to totally avoid such people, you'd have to go out of the world. The issue is the influences that we subject ourselves to, the people and perspectives and habits of thought that we immerse ourselves in in, the company that we keep, with the result that certain behaviors and thoughts and actions and worldviews become normalized to us. Like we live in the world, and therefore worldliness will always be around us, but it's important that we maintain a certain kind of spiritual and emotional distance, that's what avoid means, from the worldliness that Paul describes here. Like in this world, you will, we will, I will have to talk with, work with, engage with, at times even partner with people that Paul tells us to avoid. In other words, we must be in the world, but not of the world. It's the first caveat. Second, as you listen, you may be tempted to think about the ways that your friends and neighbors are keeping bad company. You see clearly ways in which other people are failing to avoid the wrong kinds of influences. And let me just caution you about that impulse. It may be that you will have opportunity to exhort or admonish someone about the company they keep, the voices that shape them, and I want to encourage you to do so, but your ability to do that with righteousness and humility will flow from applying the truth to yourself first. We're always prone to recognize other people's flaws and errors. They're so obvious to us. We see them clearly. Why can't they see them clearly? But Jesus requires us to remove the log from our own eye before we go speck hunting in the eyes of others. So those two caveats... Let's turn to bad company. What are the characteristics that Paul warns about here? Well, this is a vice list. It's very common in the New Testament. They show up a number of different places. They're actually common in the ancient world in general. Greek literature is filled with these sorts of lists. And they're actually kind of hard to preach because it's really just a list. There it is. Stop doing that. Right? Right? But the task here is is to try to group them together. That's what I've tried to do, is group them together into different clusters so that we can get a, a picture of the kind of people we should avoid. So I want you to listen and consider this. First, I want you to consider their loves. They are lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This speaks to what is central to them. As James K. Smith puts it, we are what we love. And these people love themselves and their own selfish desires fundamentally. They love money because it enables them to gratify their own pleasures. So I want you to think. When you think about the company you keep, the voices you listen to, can you tell what their orienting love is? What's fundamental to them? What's at the core? What is their deepest love? Is it their own private pleasure? Their own comfort? Their own ease? Is it wealth? Are they simply and basically selfish or do they love God? Is he fundamental to them? Second, consider how they posture themselves in relation to others. Paul says to avoid people who are proud, who boast and brag about their accomplishments, who can't give other people credit because they think it will reflect badly on them who are constantly puffing themselves up with conceit, who are swollen with pride, and who look down with contempt upon others. Now, now sometimes, he actually uses a couple words here for this cluster. Sometimes, uh, that pride is empty vanity, meaning they think of themselves more highly than they ought. Like, there's really no there there, but they think there's a there there. On the other hand, sometimes the abilities and skills are real. Like they really do have certain characteristics and qualities, but they simply value them too highly and they treat others with contempt and look down their noses because others lack them. Either way, whether it's empty vanity or arrogance, this kind of haughtiness and conceit, Paul says, is to be avoided. Don't keep company with them. Third, consider how they relate to others. Such people, we're told, are disobedient to their parents they despise their elders. They can only see the flaws in their predecessors in previous generations, and they are therefore ungrateful. They they magnify the failures of those who came before, whether it's their parents or others in the past, and they minimize the good that has been done to them and for them. Paul says, avoid such people. Not only that, he says, they are heartless and merciless. Now, heartless, the word literally means without affection, okay? And affection is a word for a kind of family love. It's the kind of warm, warm and tender love that exists in a family. Think about a mother with her child and you get a picture of affection. And Paul says, that kind of affection is absent from these people. Affection is warm, it's tender, it exists between family and close friends it's loyal. But these people, without affection, are treacherous. They're savage. They're brutal when attacked. They forget that their opponents are human and treat them as beneath contempt. They don't love the common good. When it says lovers of uh, not, not loving good, they don't love the common good, but instead seek their own private advancement at the expense of others. And they are unappeasable. They're pri- prima donnas. No amount of effort to please them is enough. You can't make them happy no matter how hard you try. And any effort you make to try to restore peace with them will be constantly torpedoed. Fourth, consider their impulsiveness. They lack self-control. They're dissolute, enslaved to various passions. They're hotheads always itching for a fight and eager to escalate every disagreement so it becomes World War III. When a sudden and violent reaction erupts in them, they let it ride. They are reactive. They're reckless. They're rash. They don't think long-term. They don't consider the consequences of their actions. They lash out. They erupt. They cause immense damage, multiplying quarrels and breeding controversy wherever they go. Fifth, consider their speech. It says they're abusive. The word abusive uh, there in verse 2 is literally the word blasphemy. They're abusive in speech. They malign people. They blaspheme God. Later, they're diabolos slanderers, those who run other people down, who misrepresent other people's positions, who seek to manipulate by name-calling and demonizing their opponents. And then finally, Paul highlights, this is important, the way that such people frequently cover their evil with a veneer of godliness and respectability. They have the form of godliness while denying its power. In other words, there is a superficial and hypocritical virtue that masks the self-love, the pride, the ingratitude, the impulsiveness, and the slander. And this superficial veneer of godliness comes in many shades. Like sometimes it might be name-dropping Jesus while otherwise living in such a way that would appall Him. It might include the ability to maintain a certain kind of decorum or respectability in polite society as a cover for selfishness, unholiness, and brutality. So, at like, and, and here's why this is important: because as you listen to that list, I suspect that you maybe began to think of certain individuals. They came to your mind who obviously display such traits. Their evil is evident and obvious, but remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Some men's sins are obvious. They run on ahead of them to judgment. They get there first announcing, he's on his way. Other men's sins trail behind and are not so evident. And the reason is that sin frequently loves to hide beneath a semblance of virtue. That's how it's able to sneak into households and deceive people who are burdened with sins. It's how it's able to put them on the treadmill of learning, but never arriving at the knowledge of the truth. And so, let me just say this, okay? After reading through that list, about about their loves, about their treatment of others, about their impulsiveness and speech. It's tragic that that list describes far too many of our leaders. In the church, in our civic life, in the media, entertainment, like the voices that bombard us from all sides. And, this is important, lest we shift the blame there, The voices that we willingly keep company with by our television choices, our social media feeds, the the voices that we willingly subject ourselves to bear a tragic resemblance to Paul's list. And therefore, it's no surprise that we live in times of difficulty. Now... In order to get a better sense of what to avoid, it might be helpful to describe the opposite. I don't know if you ever do this when you're doing a a Bible study. One of the things you can do when you read a list like that and you're trying to get, what what does it really look like? Flip the list, find the opposite qualities and try to paint that picture as well so that you've come to know the vice by its comparison with its opposite virtue. Does that make sense? It's a really frequent help to me in trying to really get a picture of what Paul is saying. So, what's the flip side? Like, if we we're to avoid that kind of people, what kind of people should we seek out? Like, what's good company? Well, good company, we might say, edifies. Good company speak, speaks words of life. Encouragement and gratitude are frequently on their lips. They speak the truth even when it hurts. They refuse to misrepresent their opponents. They seek to honestly represent their opponents' positions. They're humble. They don't talk about themselves. They don't like to talk about themselves. They consider their own gifts and their own abilities with sober judgment. Mostly, they just forget about themselves and do their work. They're affectionate. They're easy to please. They don't make it hard and they're always ready to make peace. They honor their parents and their elders and they give thanks for the many kindnesses of previous generations. They're self controlled, they're disciplined, they soberly consider the long view and they act in the presence in order to do good to people and not cause harm. They're faithful, they're loyal, they're wise, they're quick to listen and slow to speak. Fundamentally, They love God, not themselves or money or their own pleasure. And I would just say, flip side of what Paul says, befriend such people. Keep company with such people. Listen to such people. Seek out their voices and their wisdom and their stability so that you can learn to walk wisely in evil days. Now, now flipping that vice list. You got, we got a list of what to, we should avoid and we can sort of invert it and get a list of what to lean into, but Paul actually does this one better. He actually gives us a description of the kind of people that we ought to seek out and the kind of people that we ought to be. Paul describes here the Lord's servant. What are the characteristics of the Lord's servant? When he says that, I think he fundamentally means pastor's. He's talking to Timothy, who's going to be appointing pastors and leading pastors. He says, Timothy, this is what the Lord's servant must be. This is what you must be as a leader in God's church. And so let's look now more carefully at that list and see if, if we can discern the kinds of voices we should listen to. Number one, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. And here we have to make some distinctions, okay? Quarreling is not the same thing as fighting. Quarreling is not the same thing as disagreeing. Quarreling is not the same thing as debating. Like, there is a time that the Lord's servant must fight. Like, think of Jesus with the Pharisees. Like, he publicly debated them. He intensely disagreed with them. He even called them out and used sharp words to reveal their error. Brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, hypocrites. And Jesus was not quarrelsome. So also with Paul, he forcefully refuted Judaizers. He opposed those he called the mutilators of the flesh, who were enslaved to their bodily appetites. Even in this book... The one that we're reading, he has called out his opponents and their error by name, and Paul was not quarrelsome. So, the Lord's servant, on the one hand, must be ready to fight, he must be willing to fight, but he must not love to fight. This is hard. He must not love fighting so much that he rejects peace when it's possible that's quarrelsome. He must not always be looking for a fight or worse, breeding fights, picking fights, stoking fights. Instead, the Lord's servant is willing to fight when necessary but is always eager to find common ground, to find agreement wherever it can be found. Another way to think about quarreling, quarrelsomeness. Quarreling involves being impulsive, being reactive, flying off the handle, unable to dial things down. The Lord's servant, I think, is always looking to de-escalate if possible, to see where there might be misunderstanding rather than simply hitting back. And he has a sense of proportion. He knows when he needs to use a scalpel and he knows when he needs to amputate. He knows when it's time for a soft word And he knows when it's time to drop a hammer. The quarrelsome man only knows how to escalate. Okay? All he has is a hammer and therefore everything looks like a nail. And his attitude is ready, fire, aim. All right. Second, not only must the Lord's servant not be quarrelsome, but instead he must be kind to all, including his opponents. And again, we have to distinguish. Kindness here doesn't equal niceness, okay? Jesus was kind to the Pharisees, and He called them whitewashed tombs. Our opposition, however, to other people must be motivated by a desire for their ultimate good. That's kindness. And we must always be on the lookout for signs of hope As opposed to hoping that they stay stuck in their error. So you just think for a minute about Jesus and the Pharisees, right? He's opposing the Pharisees. They're constantly in his face. And yet when a Pharisee shows up by night and wants to talk to him, Jesus doesn't come ready to pick a fight. He tries to teach Nicodemus. He tries to instruct him. He tries to clarify what Nicodemus is missing. And the fact that he's a Pharisee doesn't keep Jesus from treating him with kindness. Third, the Lord's servant must be able to teach. Okay, so what does that mean? This, this word able to teach shows up elsewhere in the, in the list of what a pastor must be, what, what an overseer must be. So what, what is able to teach? Well, able to teach means that the Lord's servant is able to bring clarity to complexity, like to define things, to describe issues in such a way that people understand better what we're even talking about. Like there's a way of bringing clarity, um, of, of trying to divide and make distinctions, to try to, to try to get to the bottom and the root of matters and to see through the confusion in order that people have better understanding of what's under discussion. And I think this, this ability to teach goes hand in hand with that kindness. Like the Lord's servant first seeks to represent his opponents in a way that they will embrace. Like when he describes their position, they say, yes, you've understood. And then, having done that, he unloads on them. He blasts it, both barrels of truth. But he doesn't misrepresent. He doesn't describe their position in such a way that they disown it. He feels free to refute, to correct, even name-call as Jesus did but only after he has done the hard work of describing their position fourth while doing this he must have a thick skin people will say false and evil things about him he will be slandered his reputation will be assaulted and he must not take it personally He must patiently endure evil. In fact, according to Jesus, he ought to rejoice when slandered. He has to rejoice. Jesus says, when people say false things about you, rejoice in that day. That's how they talk about the prophets. That's how they talk about Jesus. And so we rejoice when slandered and continue to show kindness and bring clarity in the heat of the controversy when it's most difficult. Finally, the Lord's servant must correct with gentleness. Notice this. This is really get big. He's correcting. He's saying, You're wrong. That's false. This is true. You should believe it. That's error. You should not believe it. This is the right way to think. That's the wrong way to think. The Lord's servant corrects, but he's doing so with a gentleness, a tenderness, and a humility. And I think this means he's self aware and self-controlled. Like, he's measured in his responses. He's not just trying to win an argument and drop the mic. He's trying to win the person. He doesn't simply react. He responds. He listens, and then he instructs. His gentleness may, at times, have a bite to it, as it did for Jesus and for Paul. But there's always an intentionality. There's an old phrase. A gentleman is someone who never insults another person unintentionally. Jesus never insulted another person unintentionally. When he spoke those biting words, when Paul spoke those biting words, he did so knowing exactly what he was doing and ready for the Nicodemus moment ready for the repentance should it appear. Now why? Why is, it, why is the Lord's servant able to have this kind of measured, self-control, kind correction? And this is where I want to end. It comes, that, that kind of measured correction comes from recognizing that the Lord's servant is not the Lord. He's not God. Notice what Paul says. This is worth looking carefully at. Verse 25 of chapter 2, "...correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will." Notice that. Paul knows that God is the one who grants repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Like, changing the human heart, changing the human mind is a work of God, not a work of man. The Lord's servant teaches, the Lord's servant corrects, but he knows that ultimately God is the one who changes the heart. And he knows that he is in the midst of spiritual warfare. His opponents have been captured by the devil to do the devil's will like there are dark powers at work in the midst of this time of difficulty in the heat of this controversy there are powers in play that want this to get worse and the Lord's servant knows it and so he's going to conduct himself in such a way that he is an instrument in the Lord's hands The only way that people will come to their senses is if God acts like they won't come to their senses if God doesn't act and frequently the Lord's servant knows God chooses to act through the patient kind gentle correction and instruction of his servants The Lord's servant knows he is an instrument in God's hands. He is the scalpel, not the surgeon. And so he seeks to be the best scalpel possible. He doesn't blunt himself by being quarrelsome. He doesn't rust himself through the love of money or the pride or recklessness or slander. Instead, he loves God, not himself. He loves his sovereign grace and he knows his role in the story that God is telling. In other words, in sum, the Lord's servant knows that his fundamental role is to point to the servant of the Lord, which brings us to the table. This table is the table of the servant of the Lord. The Lord Jesus was not quarrelsome, though he did fight. He was kind to all, including the opponents that he righteously opposed. He was able to teach and instruct others, bringing clarity to confusion and cutting right to the heart of the issue and exposing the hearts of men. He corrected his opponents with gentleness and he patiently endured evil. He was despised and rejected by men man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And he was more than just a servant of the Lord. He was the servant of the Lord. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed, and that's why we keep company at this table. That's why we come to this table, So that by his wounds we may be delivered from the snare of the devil. By his wounds we can return to God in humble faith and repentance. And so come and welcome to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are surrounded by voices. Demanding our attention hijacking our brains sometime in order to get that attention. Would you help us, Lord, to discern the right voices? Would you help us to hear your voice in the voice of your servants? Would you help us to shun and avoid the influences, the leaders who would lead us astray and who would increase the times of difficulty in which we live? God, we need your help and your wisdom to do so. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we thank you that you welcome us, flawed as we are, broken as we are, at this table. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite the pastors to come as we distribute the elements. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.